I have a short-range plan for today and a long-range plan for the next six weeks. The overall plan for the next six weeks is to talk about how these practices of kindness and compassion and attention work uh, to keep the mind and the heart buoyant and interested and engaged. That's another way of talking about spiritual powers, spiritual fortitude. I have two particular ways that I want to start today. I want to start with two tributes. I want to start with a tribute to Simon Rothberg, Donald's father, who died. Um, He died uh, on Yom Kippur. Donald's father died on Yom Kippur. And uh, there was a memorial a week ago Sunday in his mother's house. Donald has a mother. His father was 84. His mother is 82. She lives in East Petaluma. So I was in East Petaluma, in an area I'd never been before, in the living room of Donald's parents' home with about 20 people who... uh, were family and friends who sat around, and mostly Donald's mother talked about her uh, 60 years, almost 60 years, I think 58 years with uh, with uh, Simon. And uh, Donald talked a lot about him. And uh, the thing that uh, was so um, moving to me uh, are the stories about his dignity and his uh, um, his equanimity and uh, restraint and uh, implacable goodwill, in spite of a lot of difficulties. You, who remembers Donald's father from being here? I, I I told Donald, you know, everybody loves it because he's one of the few people who's a man in his fifties who can bring both of his parents. To school when he's teaching. I mean, you know, usually, you know, who goes to school to teach a class when you're 55 years old and brings two parents with you who are enjoying what you're doing and having personal pleasure from the. And when Bernice said, "Really, they like that?" You know, I hope Bernice comes back soon. She will. She likes being here. Uh, and uh, in fact, Bernice and Simon, first of all, had a long and good life together, but also very close because Simon became blind probably about 30 years ago. So Bernice has always been next to his side, taking him here and, you know, helping him be places. And and always they would stay after afterwards when I was here. They'd often come with Donald to listen when I was teaching, and then we'd all have lunch together, and he'd come to the teacher's lunchroom. And Simon was so proud of Donald that he was a teacher here and so interested in Donald's work. Simon was a, uh, um, a uh, chemist, worked for the government. Uh, they imagined that his blindness was probably the sequelae of some accident that happened in the lab where some things blew up a long time ago. He was also in the um, Army Air Force in the Second World War and uh, 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 very proud of himself, an officer and in charge of many men, and he uh, felt tremendously about his relationships with the people whose lives he felt responsible for. But uh, as people talked about him, there was such a, a sense of a dignified life devoted to being interested in other people. Donald said um, that on the day before he died, uh, uh, he called, told his father uh, that he had just finished another chapter. You know, he's, only, he's just at the end and the end and the end of this book that he's been writing for some years. And he said, uh, Dad, I think I finally finished that, that chapter. And his father died at home and uh, was in and out of a coma at the end. And Donald said, Dad, I think I finished the book. He said, oh, that's great. I'm so proud of you. That he really died without a complaint at all, without an embittered word. He spent the last weeks of his life 
praising his family for what a wonderful family they were and how glad he was to have had them. And I thought to myself, there's such a nobility about that. And that one of the things that it did for me, I knew I knew Simon and I'd met him before. I actually took my husband with me to that memorial afternoon. And he knows Donald a little bit because I've known Donald for so long. But he'd never met Bernice or known Simon. And, but he heard all these people speak in the afternoon. And he, and he was moved to tears and uplifted by the whole thing. And I was realizing the thing about human beings is we have such a potential of nobility in ourselves that when we hear a story about somebody else who did a whole different life and not a life that we could have done or did do, it picks up our own confidence in what we could do in our own way. Remember last year we talked about Paul Farmer's book and remember Paul Farmer is the man in Haiti who uh, has devoted his life to treating tuberculosis there and in other places against impossible odds. And without any of us being ready to maybe change our lives or able to go to medical school and have that fortitude and that dedication. It so picks up the heart to think, well, Paul Farmer was being Paul Farmer, but I, Sylvia Boorstein, or Joe Button, or Lynn Moody could just be us in the best possible way that we could be. There's something about listening to a life well-lived that that so picks up the the spirit. I've been thinking about this particularly because, as you know, I've been thinking especially in the last few years, of what is it that keeps the spirit revived? I don't know how to want to say this, but I want to say it. What is it keeps the heart aloft? What keeps the spirit revived? What keeps the heart consoled? Maybe that's a little too quiet. What keeps the heart engaged? What keeps the heart caring? What keeps it thinking, you know, I could make a difference? It is so easy to become... Um, sanguine and uh, disillusioned with the world and you know the, the newspapers now you know I'm, I'm glad that uh, the, the uh, malfeasances in government are being exposed but it's so dismaying to see degrees of perfidy and it's I, I don't want to gloat I actually, I actually, I actually am having a paradoxical trouble with it because you know, there's a there's a part of me that does or that's moved to, and then I keep thinking, wait a minute, they must be so embarrassed, these people, or their mothers are embarrassed, or their fathers are embarrassed, or other their friends are embarrassed. It hurts me that people should have behaved in such a way that now there are plenty of people. Or my friends or my relatives who voted for them are embarrassed. I wish everybody could just say, whoa, now don't be embarrassed. Okay, terrible mistake, move forward. It hurts me, so the, the gloating part doesn't feel good. But, but what is it that keeps the mind from saying, uh, you remember the Jules Pfeiffer cartoons? They just, I, re, I was trying to remember the year. And I remember where I was living. So I think it was 1957 or 58, and Jules Pfeiffer did a series of cartoons of people sitting huddled up in packing crates and not coming out. You see, like a crate. Do you remember Jules Pfeiffer, the cartoonist? Sitting in a box huddled up in a corner as if they're afraid to come out. And the the, um, caption was always something like, people are no damn good, and huddled up. It was kind of a... um, disillusionment statement. And I want to say that's not true. People are Paul Farmer, people are people are Rosa Parks. I have so been thinking about Rosa Parks this weekend. Everybody here knows that Rosa Parks died, I'm sure. She uh, is being buried today in um, Detroit. Her, she died in Detroit 50 years ago. She didn't give up her place in the front of the bus, and uh, it catalyzed. She was not the only person to catalyze the civil rights movement, but she was certainly a catalyzing moment in the civil rights movement. And uh, she died last week. 
in Detroit. Her body was flown to, she had a service in Detroit. The body was flown to Montgomery where there were memorial services, was then flown to Washington, D.C., where she lay in state in the White House. The first woman among the 30 people to have lain in state in the last 150 years. The first woman. Second African-American first woman. And then her body was flown back to Detroit. They had a, then they had another memorial service, three-hour memorial service in Washington yesterday, uh, day before. And then the body flown back to Detroit for its burial. The plane was a, a special plane from U.S. Air, and the pilot was an African-American man who was the first African-American to become a senior pilot on a major American airlines, and he was given the honor of flying that plane from Detroit to Montgomery to Washington to Detroit. It makes me cry to think about it. He said, Rosa Parks changed my life. And I heard about that, and I'm very touched, and I also thought Rosa Parks changed my life, and your life, and all of our lives. And she was just one person, and the line that I love was, there's a, there is that famous photo of Rosa Parks being fingerprinted. Everybody's seen that photo. She, when she was arrested for not giving up her seat on the bus, she was taken to the police station and fingerprinted. He's wearing a suit dressed up, and she was a seamstress uh, to the end of the day. And I saw that big uh, photo, a big poster of that photo. I've seen the photo many times in different places. Amongst a gallery of photos in Kripalu Institute of people who changed the world in some major way, Albert Einstein, Mother Teresa, Rosa Parks, and under each one there's a caption of one thing that they said. So here's a picture of Rosa Parks with her getting fingerprinted. And the thing that she said was something she apparently said at that time about that. She said, I was just trying to go home from work. And that moves me so much. It was not a doctrinaire statement. It was not a belligerent statement. Just a fact. I was just trying to go home from work. And I think to myself, in some ways, that was the most powerful kind of a statement. I wasn't trying to do anything. I wasn't making a protest. I wasn't because I'm against you or for me. Just trying to go home from work. It was so eminently reasonable. Everybody's trying to go home from work. That's all. In a civilized society, why would we not? Why would we make problems for anybody just trying to go home from work? And I think that that was one of those moments in time where the civilized society stops and says, wait a minute, we're doing that wrong. Just going home from work. It's a very reasonable thing. We should all go home from work, all of us. What color we are, what size we are, what language we speak, what level our skill or capacity or this or that, what our age is. People should be able to go home from work and sit down and eat with their family and have something to eat and lie down in peace and get up in peace. That sometimes... The most eloquent statements is, it makes sense to do it this way. So I thought to myself, I wanted to tell that Rosa Parks story today for two reasons. One is because it's still in my mind. It's what's happened the last several days. <sighs> Three reasons. Two is because often people think, um, or the mind thinks, it makes up the thought, which is an untrue thought, what can I, one person, do? But it's an untrue thought. I, one person, can do what I, one person, can do. And sometimes it changes the whole world. I mean, many people. Can you think about, I mean, you can think about Jesus and Buddha and Rosa Parks and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King. Who else? Gandhi. Gandhi. Abraham Lincoln. The Dalai Lama. Nelson Mandela, Albert Einstein. A lot of people said something, and it changed the world. Here I can, I will no more. Uh, Martin Luther. Hmm? Cindy Sheehan. One woman. 
I was waiting for that one person. I thought of those 2,000 people with 2,000 mothers, one of them is going to say, we have to talk about this. Yeah. Not even as far, just we have to talk about this. Come talk to me about this. This requires talk. One person has to be able to say it. And then everybody else says, oh yeah, we do have to talk about that. So my sense of um, its connection to what we are doing here is first of all, the the awareness I, for myself, how important it is that everything that everybody does makes a difference. And how fundamentally that's actually part of what the Buddha taught, that every action has consequences. Often people think, I don't think they think this anymore, come to think of it. It used to be that people thought about contemplative practice, that it was a retreat from the world. Many, many years ago, I went many years ago, probably 30 years ago, went to a, um, a conference in San Francisco. Um, George Leonard was the opening speaker. It was a conference on transpersonal psychology, which means psychology that includes contemplative practice and contemplative views and uh, information received uh, in a, an altered state of consciousness or some value-based revelation. And he said, uh, he did shows of hands, how many people from California, how many from the Bay Area. And then he said, how many people here do a daily contemplative practice? And most people did. How many people here do a daily physical discipline, yoga, Aikido, running, going to a gym, something? Many, many people did. Not everybody, not everybody gets temple of practice. He said, how many people have been in therapy? A lot of people. It was a psychology conference. Then he said, how many people voted in the last election? And everybody had their hand up. And I was not surprised, and I have remembered it ever since, because it was exactly in, in opposition to the view that people are just going to crawl off and contemplate their navels and and recuse themselves from the world because it's too difficult. I actually think if you make any progress at all in your spiritual practice, you get to see what a terrible situation the, the, and the really demanding situation the world is in, and you are mandated to respond, that that actually would be part of the revelation. Part of the revelation would be that life is difficult, that we complicate it to the level of suffering because we don't see clearly greed, hatred, and delusion. And that the only possible way to see that and not be turmoiled by it is to be the compassionate response to it. It's only in the middle of the compassionate response is that is that dreadful awareness of the ubiquitous nature of suffering in the world mitigated in some way, that you have to do it. You think, well, it's, it's, everybody's doing it for the well-being of others, Mother Teresa, they're so big-hearted. I actually think we're doing it for ourselves, that it's a, really the only response to the pain of the world. You can't hide from it. Having seen, I mean, you could try, but having seen it, it would be too terrible to leave it alone. You have to do something. And you do the peace that you can do. So maybe what I maybe what I want to do because uh, I got this haiku just now. Uh, uh, if that one person does one thing, everybody does different things. Um, there's a woman in um, Massachusetts named Sylvia Forges Ryan. I don't know Sylvia personally. I know Ed Ryan, her husband of many years, uh, because he's involved with the Barry Center for. Um, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and for the Insight Meditation Society. I've known him for many years at, because he's a meditator there and, um, at IMS, and I've known Sylvia just a little. She's re- recently finished a course of treatment for cancer. She's also recently uh, published a book of haiku, uh, which might actually be in our bookstore, I'm not sure. And she just actually won the grand prize for her haiku by the Atomic Bomb Memorial Day Haiku Committee in Japan. Uh, it's in a, it's a, this is an especially significant Memorial Day. 
in that it commemorates the 60th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The, co- the committee invited haiku from all over the world and received poems from poets in many, many besieged places, including Serbia, Montenegro, Yugoslavia, Pakistan, Croatia, Romania, Germany, Bulgaria, Bosnia, the UK, India, Ireland, and of course Japan and the U.S. In the awards announcement, the Memorial Committee noted that the review... Sylvia's grand prize haiku is this. Rereading the Iliad, another corpse dragged through Fallujah. What Ed goes on to uh, quote here is uh, about what the judges say. What is significant about this award is that the judges of her poem were all Japanese. In his award comments, the judge, Ikuru Anzai, said, I was strongly moved by this haiku, mainly because of its excellence in connecting the war some 3,000 years ago with the one just in front of us. The Iliad is an epic of the Trojan War, which was said to be composed by Homer, who was a legendary Greek troubadour some 2,800 years ago. This haiku implies that human beings witnessed conflicts 3,000 years ago and are still witnessing conflicts right in front of us. The haiku seems to be accusing the stupidity of human beings that have not succeeded in resolving conflicts over the span of 3,000 years. The poet symbolically represented the inhumanity of battlefields of Iraq before us now with the corpse being dragged through the streets of Fallujah, just as Hector's body was dragged around the walls of Troy by Achilles. The word another suggests that this is simply suggests simply that this kind of bloody murder is repeated day after day. I especially admire the ex- excellence of the poet who brings to our attention the 3,000 years of stagnation in managing violence with only three words, rereading the Iliad. You think to yourself, that's really what religious practice, I think, not only Buddhist practice, but religious practice, has asked people to do, to really recognize the fact that unexamined, those forces of greed and hatred and delusion cause human beings to do terrible things. They did before, they still do. And yet it's possible for some people not to be overwhelmed by them. It's it's possible for some people to say, no, let's not do it that way. So it's it's a terrible image to bring up. But here was Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King who said, let's not do it that way. Let's stop that, you know. And all the people after that, and the people now who are talking about nonviolent conflict resolution. Friends of mine are leaving uh, tomorrow to, um, they're actually a, a contingent of rabbis who are flying to Israel to rebuild a house that the army raised, a Palestinian house, because uh, they felt that it was uh, covering a tunnel for smuggling arms, which it may have been but it was somebody's house. And so they're going to rebuild the house. It's an organization called Rabbis for Human Rights. They're also going to pick the olive trees in the Palestinian olive groves because if they go up in the olive trees, then nobody will be tempted to shoot at anybody while the harvest is being brought in. So there are people all over the place who are going to do it another way. They're going to do it another way and not... For in, in my own mind, I think it, it, it's such a um, it's such a call to retrain the mind to the non-combative response. You can do it through wisdom, through you can do it through learning, you can do it through thinking about it you know, through outside events like thinking, "Oh, look what's happening." We're still doing the same thing and be moved in your heart. Think about Rosa Parks and become inspired. Or in one's own life and see how the mind is so easily stirred to irritation and embitterment and it could do things another way. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about my uh, an experience that happened on my trip. 
I tell you about the experience that happened on my trip, or should I tell you about so many good things that I brought to read to you? Maybe I can manage to do them all. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to do this because I, I this is a, this is a, I, I like to tell you a story of my trip, and um, I want to use this story as an outline for teaching Dharma. Also, as a, as a, as a, just uh, this is this is not so powerful as a as a Fallujah vision or perfidy in government vision, or the Iliad or what we must be thinking about the aftermath of Katrina and the feelings that that brings up. But it's a story about the bringing up of um, bad feelings and. Uh, the wisdom about how to work with them. So it's actually a funny story. Um, and it's a story about France, so I thought you'd like to know a little, a little bit about my trip. So everybody who knows, was here before knows that uh, my husband and I have bought a house in France. And uh, it's a very cool thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> Totally cool thing. It's a tiny little house. You know what else is a cool thing to say? People say, where is it? I say, well, if I walk out my back door and keep walking for an hour and a half, I'll be in Spain. That's actually true. So that's where I live. I live an hour and a half walk from Spain and a two-hour drive from Barcelona. But I live in France, just over the border. And I can see the Mediterranean from my little tiny house. So we bought a little tiny house, and the plan is as we, uh, not when we get older, as we, <laughs> as we are older, to uh, be here for three months and there for one, and here for three months and there for one. So also, uh, when we bought this house uh, a couple of months ago, we uh, furnished it uh, unusually with, it's very small, but I bought some antiques. I've never bought antiques in my life. I don't know anything about antiques. But the house is a little tiny house, and it's in that part of the world where a, a French antique looks like it's the right thing to put in it. And I passed anyway. I passed an antique store in the local town where I saw a bed with an upholstered headboard in the corner, leaning behind a few things, and I just thought. And it looked like a bed that I made in a dollhouse for one of my daughters 40 years ago, and I had to have it. So (laughs) desire arose. And in a moment of uh, enthusiasm, so excited with our new tiny house, we bought a desk, and we bought a bed, and we bought a sofa, which which really is all the furniture that we need. It's a really tiny house. Sofa, by the way, is called a canapé. Did you know that? I thought a canapé was an hors d'oeuvre, but it's a canapé. So they have a canapé and a secretaire and a bed. So we bought the bed. The bed is uh, it's got a headboard and a footboard and two sides, and they're upholstered. And it's very beautiful, and it does look like the dollhouse one. And um, it needed a mattress and and box spring, but uh, the proprietor said, oh, that's not a problem. Uh, the normal one, which we had just bought, uh, she said, oh, you can just change it. I'll call the mattress store. They'll come and change it. Yours is 140 centimeters. I'm now so up on the measurements of beds. <laughs> on a, a, a double bed is 140 centimeters. Did you know that? A queen size is 180 centimeters. A king size is two meters. Did you know that? I, I, I didn't know that. Anyway, is it two meters? 200, 200 centimeters, 200 centimeters. Okay, which is two meters. Okay, my bed is 130 centimeters. So it's smaller than 140. But So that's not a problem, she says. No, no, call up, and I'm standing right there. Call up, make the phone call, da 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 Oh, no, they'll come. They'll change the 140 for the 130. Not a problem, madame, no problem. Okay, fine, we'll do it. We organize this. We fly back to the States, and the bed is uh, delivered into our house. She says, I'll take care of it. When the mattress people come, I'll come. I'll be there. I'll organize the mattresses. Okay. 
Uh, when we arrived back this time, we found that not only were the new mattresses in that fit the bed, there was also a bill for 400 euros more than what we had planned on. Because it turned out that they do make 130 centimeter beds, but they have, but for an 1842 bed, has to have curved edges at box spring, which means they have to be made in a special factory, but probably by hand, who knows. But the end of the story will be good because the bed is very comfortable. But the begin middle of the story is difficult because here's this bill. Here is this bill for 400 euro, which is a serious amount of money. On top of the original mattress and on top of the original bed and everything else, so here I am in a situation, and I call, and uh, she explains to me, oh, yes, it turned out that it wasn't blah, da, 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 something, but, uh, you know, but you had promised us, oh, well, you know, I didn't know. Okay, hang up. Tell my husband, who doesn't speak French, so that puts me in a more pivotal position because he now feels we should go and say, you are the auntie care, you're supposed to know, you're the expert, we are supposed to know about 1842 beds, not us, you know. Meantime, I'm in the position of saying to him, this is an auntie care in a, little ha- in a little store in France. This is not Macy's. You don't just come back, you know. <laughs> he is determined he has been wronged and I should go make the case. <laughs> and, and the auntie care is a little old woman. Really, I'm a little old woman. She's 10, 15 years older than I and sitting in her <laughs> antique store. So, so now I am in a position of going. So I go. I go. And my husband does not speak French. So his participation in this dialogue is as he's standing and glowering. He stands and glowers, and here's Madame, and here's me. And in my best French, subjunctive, everything, I explain about how uh, shocked we were to come and find this enormous bill. And that, in fact, since the bill was to the mattress company and uh, I was obligated to pay it, I did already pay it. We had talked and I said, seriously, you don't think she's going to give us back money, do you? She said, no, probably not. But at least maybe she'll give us bedside tables to go with the... <laughs> she's got this whole store full of stuff and it's her fault and she should give us something to make amends, okay? So I explain in my best polite everything and that we were relying on her as the expert, you know, all that, you, you, that you would know what we know, blah, blah, blah. goodwill, all of that. And then I, and I end up by saying that, uh, you know, the bed is lovely, I'm very happy to have it, but in fact, I am left with some very bad feelings. And my husband also, he has bad feelings. So, <laughs> and bad feelings in French, I uh, tell her, mauvaise émotion, you know. Nous avons mauvaise émotion. She looked over to me in a very, like, concerned way, you know, really, really like it concerned her. And she said, oh, madame, mauvaise émotion are no good for you. (laughs) You should put them down. It's in the past, she said. It's in the past. She said, forget about it. <laughs> These things happen. You should look towards the future. <laughs> and she goes back again, mauvaise émotion, not good for you. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking three things at the same time. First of all, I'm thinking I'm not going to get any bedside tables. <laughs> I'm also thinking she's completely right. She's completely right. I'm also thinking it's a good story, so I remember it. But I got something. I got a good story. But uh, so I took apart those five, those six things that she said to me, which are very very important pieces of dharma. So I want to see if I can go over with you. Mauvaise émotion. First of all, they're not good for you. They're not good for you. Everyone is showing now with scientific research that the mind that's bitter, the mind that's agitated, the mind that's unforgiving, actually different parts of the mind light up. Different chemicals are loosed in the body. 
My friends have been saying for years that the mind is like tofu and it matters what you marinate it in. It doesn't have a taste by itself. If you marinate it in a bitter marinade, the tofu will not taste good. If you, the tofu by itself doesn't taste like anything. If you marinate it in something good, it'll come out okay, but not in bitter. So, mauvaise émotions are no good for you. They embitter the spirit. They're very bad for your blood pressure, for your heart rate, everything. Make you sick. But starting with the first one, Madame uh, V, we'll call her, because that's her name, actually. Uh, but I want to say her whole name. Anyway, Madame says, uh, you should put them down. And I want to say, it's very hard to do that when the mind is irritated. I say to my husband, forget about it. We're here, beautiful bed, but it's not fair. It's incorrect. It's the principle of the thing. Principle of the thing from now till cows come home. She's not going to give us anything from it. And we bought it. This is not Macy's. It's a different country. you got to live in a different way. It's not fair. It isn't. But that's the way it is. You know, there's a lot in life that isn't fair. In a long time ago, when, um, when we weren't so wise in psychotherapy uh, and getting a little wise about spirituality, people would say, um, let go. Just let go. If you would let go of this, you'd be free. If we could, we would. Nobody is perverse. The mind takes something and perseverates on it, and it just does it over and over again. And it feels like a demon has moved in there. You would be happy if it would put it down. And so really, one of the things to think about, and this is back on your question about meditation, the people who have some skill in being able to say, you know what, I'm making myself crazy with this thought about Madame and her bed. The bed is here, it's a done deal. Let me just uh, sit here and say my mantra to myself, may I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart. May I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart. I'll count on my fingers, I'll do it a hundred times. My mind will calm down afterwards. I can't wish it away, but I can do something else with my mind that will cause it to fall away. Most of the time, most of the time. I like to add that most of the time because sometimes things so take over the mind that they seem to be like stuck on with some kind of cement glue and they don't go away. When that happens, what I mostly do is call one of my friends or talk on the phone with somebody that I trust and say, you know what? I have this thing and it's stuck in my mind. I can't put it down. I'm going to tell it to you. Can you believe it? That's stuck in my mind. If I laugh about it with somebody, it like pries it a little bit loose from my mind. What actually happens is, is, you know, there's no mind for it actually to pry loose from that kind of mechanical metaphor. It doesn't work. But what happens is, as I tell my friend, and we talk about it or we laugh about it, I am held in the love of my friend. And so the grip that my mind has of, of that it's, you know, it's like a spasm of the mind. And then it gets caught like that. It somehow like jams itself in the off position and it can't, it can't get out of it. And somehow held in somebody else's concern, it relaxes, it lets go, and the thought goes away. It's, it's not you forget about it. You know? I should have brought you a picture of the bed. It's very pretty. <laughs> Second thing, she said, just put it down. The Second thing, she said, it's also eminently sensible. It's in the past. The thing is, it is in the past. But it's in the present when you remember it, you know? <laughs> However much it's, you know, it's in the past. If the moment that I remember it, it is now. And it hurts me or it haunts me in the same way or in a lesser way or a different way or a ramified way from the way that it did before. But memories are very painful. So to really say, uh, the, the, one of the things in therapy is people talk about a memory that's particularly painful for a while, until they, they take some of, the, some of the energy goes out of it from talking about it this way or that way or that way or that way. And so it's not as painful. It's like a, a nightmare that you tell over and over and over again. On the fifth or the tenth telling, it's not so bad. It's like a treatment of post-traumatic stress. You talk about it a lot. One of the really important things in psychotherapy, I think, is to talk about how much is a lot. And when is, over, when is too much? When am I making this a habit of my mind so that this story is now becoming the identity around which I tell my story? I was this, I was that. 
you know, the, uh, the beginning of the Dhammapada is, uh, he wronged me, he abused me, he hurt me, he offended me, something like that. People who, um, people whose thoughts, uh, who continue these thoughts, unhappiness follows them like the cart follows the ox. Uh, he hurt me, he abused me, he offended me, this, me, that, me. People who do not cultivate these thoughts, happiness stays with them like a shadow. You know, that, that, but you have to be able to discover at which point is it enough talking about it so that it's not frightening and haunting and does it move over into the things that I remember that don't hold my life in hostage. She said, uh, you should put it down. It's in the past. Forget about it. Well, you can't forget about it. You, and uh, One of the things, again, it's a variation of what I've been saying. People try to forget about things that are painful. I'll just put them out of my mind before they've been ready to look at them. And then they don't actually get forgotten. They get hidden. And there's difference between hidden and forgotten. And I would like to forget things, but I'd like not to hide them. And somehow that same balance of, um, can I look at this enough? Uh, you know, when, when people talk about the difference between instructions for mindfulness and instructions for being in therapy with somebody, when you're sitting on your zafu or on your chair quietly, you're doing, it's, it's, a, it's a therapeutic thing for yourself. Here comes this, here comes that, here comes this, here comes that. Just like when you're a therapist. Here comes this, here comes that. But with one you say it out, and the other one you sit quietly. But you're the witness to it in both cases. In one case, somebody else helps you look at it. In another case, you yourself are stuck with it. Actually, I think that's one of the wonderful reasons to have interviews with teachers on retreat. You can say, you know what I faced today, and just tell, you know, you don't have to do anything with the story. I just want to tell you my story. Because there's a difference between um, hiding and forgetting. So here is Madame Vozelle's fourth dictum. She first will put it down, uh, forget about it. It's in the past. It's in the past. Forget about it. These things happen. And you all laugh before the, everything happens. These things happen. All the things that we mentioned about people, you know, the, the things in the government that are upsetting, these things happen. They don't happen you know, out of nothing. They happen as a result of events. But there could be different events, and it could unhappen in different ways. Uh, terrible things happen to people. You know, people trip and uh, fall into the path of a, of a driving car and sometimes get hurt, sometimes get killed, and then you think, well, why did this happen, and what was the meaning of it? And I am quite, you know, I, I, I leave it at the level of these things happen. It doesn't have to be a bigger reason than there was a stone in the road when this bike hit it, and that person fell, and the car was there. That karma doesn't mean because of some plan. It means things happen as a result of other things. But it doesn't have to have a personal, that's impersonal. That uh, nobody deserves to fall in front of a car or deserves to have the stone there, but the stone was there and the bike was there and the car was there. Things happen. Sometimes they happen in that kind of accidental way. Sometimes they happen because people are unknowledgeable and they buy beds on whims and don't check it out. But then they have beds that they probably wouldn't have had if they checked it out, you know? So then you have to look to the future, Madam V said. You really do. The problem with the mind when it's closed in on itself is it doesn't think it has a future, that the mind that's in the grip of some pain has forgotten that there's a space around the pain. We've talked about that so frequently here in different contexts that you come here, and I, I, you know, often I drive in here, and it's so beautiful here that my mind might be just churning over something or other, and then these ridiculous turkeys cross the road, and I think, oh, I'm so glad they live here. And in that moment, the grip on the mind is less, or someone calls you and tells you something really funny, or 
Uh, you've watched somebody taking care of their baby in a cute way, or somebody walks by with twins in a stroller in a beautiful costume, and you get all picked up about it, or you, you just hear some lovely news about something. And the mind picks up. Houston Smith said this great line. I was in a conference where he was one of the really honored speakers a couple of weeks ago. And he said about uh, Houston's in his mid-80s, he's had lots of personal tragedies in his life in the last several years. And uh, someone asked him, uh, he was talking about the, how helpful a compassionate, a compassionate presence of other people is, that terrible things happen. He didn't put them any of them in some framework of it's this or it's that, just they're terrible. And there's compassionate support, and you manage. And someone said, "Well, you know, what happens? How does it? How does it happen that uh, you can move on?" He said, "I don't know." He said, "Somehow, cheerfulness breaks through." Mm-hmm. And so you wait a while, cheerfulness breaks through. And I think there are two parts to it. First of all, I think it's true that cheerfulness breaks through more easily for some people than other people, and I think it's really important to notice that that some people are on the lookout for a break in the clouds and some cheerfulness, and some people, you really need a very big cheerfulness to break through. (laughs) And you say, well, maybe this will hold for a while. And it's all chemical, I think, or maybe biological, I think, mostly. Cheerfulness breaks through. I want to tell you the sixth one, and I see it's 11 o'clock. I had such a great moment of cheer. I was in... um, I was in Gainesville, Florida a couple of weeks ago for a week teaching in different places and some people in the brain-mind lab of the university took me on a tour of their uh, magnetic resonance machines, MRI machines, that they they make these huge machines. You know, we have machines. How many people have ever been in an MRI? Creepy, isn't it? They have huge machines with tremendous magnets where they can magnify the tiniest things, studying genetic particle movement and the movement of currents of fluids in the, in the um, brain um, uh, arteries of mice or in the heart arteries of mice. It's a huge, huge uh, resonance machine, one of them in one of the rooms, some scientists working on computers looking... And in the resonance machine, in that hole where you normally put a person, you know, 10 times better, bigger than a person machine, and there's a hole, but in the middle of the hole, you can't see what's in there, but you see some little wires and tubes coming out. And they say, oh, there's an anesthetized mouse in there. And they show me a thing that looks like a, an orange juice can. They say, that's where we put him in. He's anesthetized, he'll be fine. Put him in this orange juice can, and he's in this big machine. And so that tube is anesthesia, keeping him comfortable. And this other one is somehow making readings onto a machine. And they've got all these scientists studying the movement of fluids in the heart ventricles of this teeny mouse that's in that big machine in order to be able to cure coronary artery disease. And I think to myself, people are amazing. Look what they invent. Look what they're doing. Human ingenuity is so exciting. So when I read Susan's haiku, uh, uh, Sylvia Forges's haiku about 3,000 years, we haven't figured out how not to kill each other. Maybe we'll figure out how not to kill each other. Making such an effort to find out how to keep each other alive, maybe we'll begin to figure out more and more. We'll be able to see the forces of greed that complicate it. I think about that, that look to the future. So maybe i tell you the whole story because one of the things that opens my mind from this happened to me to you never know are moments of awe. I say, look what these people are doing. All these scientists with you know, 200 years of combined study, all of them, all of them looking at this mouse and the orange juice can and what's about them. And the last one, again, is, we'll come back and go it over again, as Madame V said, Mauvaise émotions are very bad for you. Really, again, they're bad for you. They're not good for your health. And so really to, to say, what's, what's the point of our practice? I am really practicing to cultivate more happiness in my mind, more delight, not more um, 
oh, complacence with what's going on. You know, I'm not more complacent. Somebody said a great line to me. Actually, it's uh, Martha's partner, Joelle Yuna. What just after uh, Katrina, when we were so upset with what we could see as, uh, uh, in addition to the terrible loss of life and pain and suffering and separation, could see more clearly than ever the real truth of the social inequalities of this life, of this country and how it falls out in poverty and racism and how just how it was reflected so clearly in that, in ways that people could really see that hadn't seen before. And I, I said, uh, I, I was trying to write something at the time, and I said to Joelle, you know, I can't write because I'm too furious. And I'm writing about loving kindness and not having <laughs> ill will. And I said, and I'm furious. And Joelle said, well, you know, you can be furious and not have ill will. And that was such a good thought. You can be furious and not have ill will. This, this could be full of passion. This role, you know, we're doing it wrong in this world. And that ill will is not the answer. That to say, we're doing it wrong. But to what's the reasonable answer? Let's do it right. I was only trying to go home from work. So I want to tell you, it's a great pleasure to be back. I will look forward a lot till next week. What, Susan? I want to remind people that before we get together, there's an election. For the oh, yeah, yeah. And it's very, I think it's very, very, very important for people to go out and, I mean you know, say no to Arnold's initiatives. I think so, too. I already voted. My ballot is in. Okay. Who already voted? Okay. Who will, volunteer, who will say now that they will make sure to talk to three people and make sure that they voted? Okay. That's a very good thing to do. And it's great to have Chris back. Chris, tell everybody on KPFA that they should vote. Are you telling them a thousand times a day? Good. <laughs> it's great to have you all back. Take care of yourself. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 2, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.